0: this line of the Buddhas where he says I teach one thing and one thing only suffering and its end and I'd like to expand a little on that in speaking this evening about suffering or in the Pali Dukkha and about what the Buddha called liberation through non-clinging it's often um, Buddhism is often derided or put down for the Buddha having said life is suffering which is rather uncheery thought unfortunately for the Buddha, probably, for life in general that's not the case that's not what he said But in what's called the First Noble Truth, he pointed out that there is suffering in life. And as I say, the Pali word for that is dukkha, which uh, the most classical translation has been suffering. Although that tends to suggest a kind of medieval torture to me. And sometimes life can feel a little like medieval torture. But the word dukkha, as well as that kind of extreme uh, pain that we might call suffering, covers kind of the whole range of unease in life, of difficulty, of uh, stress, anxiety. The, The most literal translation would be that which is hard to bear. And so, all the way from that which is really very, very painful and difficult and overwhelming in its suffering, all the way to a kind of low-level unease or dissatisfaction that we may often feel with the way things are in life. We often feel... um, confused or disappointed or rather like something's gone horribly wrong in life when there's dukkha when there's unease when things aren't as we would wish them to be we can feel like we failed somehow or like life has failed us and in a way the good news of this noble truth is that that's normal It's not something that needs to kind of uh, rock the boat too much. Things do go wrong. Have we ever met anybody who's managed to organise their life in such a way that nothing ever goes wrong? And so the Buddha really based his whole teaching, his whole approach on the fact to be acknowledged, to be understood, to be really seen clearly that there's this element to life that's really unsatisfactory that things go wrong that that life does not accord to our wishes and he pointed to the fact of aging of getting sick of dying of having things that we don't want to have of not having things that we do want to have of being separated from that or whom we love. These are the experiences of all human beings. And it's a very significant shift in life from struggling with all those things that don't go our way, that don't seem right, that don't seem fair, that, that we'd like to be otherwise to really acknowledging the fact that life is like that. And in a way, maybe that's why we're here on this retreat. We may have a wide variety of reasons for having come here, but I would say, really we're here because of some acknowledgement of that noble truth. So that there is that in life which is hard to bear. The unwanted is unavoidable in our life. And so rather than spend enormous amounts of energy in struggling with that, in trying to organize in a a futile way, trying to organise our life to not conform to that law, to be just as we would like, we start to see, well, maybe I need to meet all that in another way. Really acknowledging deeply that this is a fact of life. It's not as we would like it to be. It doesn't follow our wishes. It would be rather strange if it did follow our wishes. Because then it would certainly not be following anyone else's. The very idea we have that we could somehow get life to fit in with my plan for it, it's kind of absurd. Given the fact that there's however many billion of us on the planet And we'd all have very idea very different ideas of how life would conform to our personal agendas. In the second of the noble truths, the Buddha talks about the causes of this dukkha, of this suffering. What leads us to experience life in such a way that we find it hard to bear? problematic, that we become anxious, fearful, confused, compulsive, needy, overwhelmed, hot, angry about the way life happens. And he pointed very particularly to clinging, to our, the demands we make on life, the insistence we have that things go a certain way, be a certain way. And just in our meditation practice today, we've probably seen that movement of the mind that wants to insist, that wants to hold to a certain experience, or wants to keep a certain experience away that wants to hold to a certain idea of how our meditation should be going. That wants to return to how it was going 30 seconds ago when all was peaceful. Now what's happened? Right in the heart of what spiritual practice offers is a way of understanding this grasping, this clinging and cultivating what the Buddha called the mind of no-clinging. So our practice, in, in many ways, is one of recognizing the clinging and letting go, breathing out. And there are many different ways in which this kind of demanding that life be a certain way happens and just just in the language of it you kind of can have a sense of how problematic that is making demands making demands on something that that isn't listening that won't conform to our wishes it's kind of uh, stubborn and childish in a way And yet, it's the way we live our lives. It's the way our conditioning, our family, our society, our culture has taught, even encouraged us to live our lives. To make something of ourselves. To to carve our way. To go for what we want. And of course, there's a validity to having a sense of what's important and pursuing that. And yet, when it becomes that insistence, that demand, what will be the fruit of that when it's not fulfilled? So the Buddha talks about the different ways in which we cling. And the first area, I'd like to look at these these. Areas of clinging. And the first he calls sensual desire. Which is really all about wanting. That enormous force of wanting in our lives. And again, the encouragement from all around us for wanting is uh, quite overwhelming. Advertising everywhere, encouraging us to get this, do that be whoever go wherever and the the very strong message we get that that is what will make us happy I recently saw on the back of a bus as it disappeared I was, standing, I was crossing the road I saw this bus disappearing and on the back it said it was an advert for goodness knows what but the main thrust of it it said they say money isn't everything And underneath it said, yeah, right. (laughs) What a disastrous message. So moment by moment in our meditation experience, we can see the power, the force of the wanting mind and how driven we are by it. And just to, tr- just to trace that process, to see what happens as we, as we sit in the hall. There's some kind of contact goes on. We see something, we hear something, we taste something, we think of something. Something comes to us through any of the five senses, or through the mind, which we could call the sixth sense, not in any kind of uh, Telepathic way there that, as in number six of you know, the way the ways we meet the world there's some contact happens which we either respond in a way of liking or disliking or are kind of ambivalent about that's the normal experience of every human being so we feel a certain Bodily sensation. Maybe the wind is open and a soft breeze is blowing on the on the face. And there's the acknowledgement and mmm and we just feel a kind of pull towards, maybe just a very gentle appreciation of ah and there's liking. Or there's a kind of that starts to build up in the knee. And there's disliking what very quickly happens hot on the heels of a pleasant sensation or an unpleasant sensation is wanting. Wanting to keep or wanting to get rid of. And that wanting can be very, very uncomfortable. The more we buy into it, the more we believe that we need to get what the mind wants, the more contraction, the more compulsion there is. And probably through the day, there's been various different experiences of wanting. I I walked in the, the manager's dining room at lunchtime. This very process happened. It's happening to us over and over again through the day. But there was contact, in this case with the nose, the smell of coriander, and then, mmm, wanting. That sense of movement towards. What happens, wanting is kind of agitating, uncomfortable, unpleasant, difficult to be with. And so what we do is we try to bring about the end of wanting because it's so uncomfortable. And the way we do that is by trying to get the thing we want. Which, you know, is very appropriate in some ways. There's some way in which the smell is designed to make me want the food so that I eat, so that I get the, the necessary sustenance from that. But of course it spills out into endless areas of our life, that which we want. Because it's so uncomfortable... We, we want to get the thing. And when we get the thing, we experience some relief. Ah. And sometimes this is going on in very, very subtle ways in the mind. And sometimes in very large and noticeable ways. But we're all familiar with that process of wanting something and then getting it and ah, feeling some relief. But then what happens? If that was really relief, in any kind of sustainable, useful, genuinely peaceful kind of relief, that would be it, wouldn't it? But how long does it last? Now, you've only been shut up in Gaia House for the relatively short time, most of us of a couple of days. So maybe the, the big wantings haven't really started to click in yet. But it's amazing what yogi mind can want after, while in the simplicity of retreat. Just a simple thing, like a cup of coffee, can get elevated to some great status. We can start in meditation. People describe somehow in in alarming detail in interviews the the precision of their fantasies around a cup of coffee. And these days, of course, we've got all kind of foamy varieties of coffee that you can get more excited about, with chocolate powder sprinkled on top and kind of frothy bits and. And the the way the mind can move. Of course, when the thing's not available, we notice the power of the wanting much more. We don't actually. There's no evidence to suggest that the wanting is any greater than when the coffee is just next door. But because it's not available, we 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 see the power, the heat, the discomfort of I want when we can't fulfil it. And it's actually very useful. To put ourselves in a condition of simplicity in this way so that we're able to experience the power of wanting. To recognise how uncomfortable it is. To recognise what an enormous power wanting has over our lives. That we often don't notice because what do we do? We just go and get a cup of coffee. What we notice, though, easily is in getting the thing we want the relief is not really in the thing. Have you ever had that experience of really ah, you really want a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, whatever it is somebody presents you with the cup ah, you don't even have to drink of it sometimes it's just just the ah, I've got what I want, ah. So that ah Well, I can really sense the relief, the whew, the sigh, the coolness in that. In that as the end of wanting. That's what gives relief. Coffee doesn't give relief. The end of wanting gives relief. But the problem is, we've no sooner drunk the coffee, than there's a new contact in the mind. A new want, and then we're rushing off after some other thing, and that's endless. The wanting mind is endless. How we, how many years have we been wanting things? How many lifetimes we might some might ask, have we been wanting things? And a good proportion of those things we wanted, we've actually managed to get. But what has it done for our wanting? Has it assuaged wanting in any way at all? Or has it actually increased the power of wanting? Because we're going on in that same pattern. Wanting happens, oh, oh, it's uncomfortable. We get the thing we want, ah. And we feel so, ah, so pleased with that, ah. And the next thing want... Oh, we quickly want to grab that. Endless. This is what the Buddha calls the wheel of samsara. The wheel of becoming. The wheel of birth and death. That endless... Going on. Going on. Wanting, getting, relief. Wanting, getting, relief. Wanting, getting, relief. Wanting, maybe not getting. Oh, disappointment, confusion, frustration... You think wanting or oh, off somewhere else? <sighs> what a distressing vision of human life. Going from one desire to another, some of them fulfilled, some of them frustrated. Is there another way to find the end of wanting? Of course, in a kind of spiritual environment, we often have the idea of austerity, of doing without. And so we can go from the extreme, if you like, of trying to satisfy all our wants to the extreme of trying not to have any wants or trying not to fulfill any wants. Which can be very miserable, as well. So there can be the idea, oh, now I'm a meditator, I'm a yogi. I'm not going to buy into that world of wanting and consumerism and whatever it might be. And can get very kind of puritanical about doing without, about living a simple life. I mustn't want anything. And yet there's a kind of tightness often that goes along with that. You can get tight around food, around the various things that are objects of desire around sexuality. Ramdas calls that this the the horny celibate syndrome. kind of attempt to do without, to solve the problem by pushing it away. And yet, as we spoke in one of the questions this morning about the spring, the more we try to suppress in that way, the more we're giving power to the spring. So what would be the middle way with wanting? Where we're neither enslaved to endlessly trying to fulfill our desires, nor enslaved to endlessly trying to do away with them, ignore them, suppress them. In meditation, we really have the opportunity to recognise wanting, to see what's happening there, to recognising the ways in which we cling. We can see this process happening, Like I said, there's some contact, there's liking, there's the movement towards. And really, if we can see that taking birth, we can start to have a very different relationship to it. One of the extraordinary things about meditation, really, is that our experience doesn't have to change. What changes is the relationship we bring, the way we meet our experience. So the wanting still arises, still goes on. We don't need to have any idea that that itself should stop in order for there to be peace of mind. We often say, oh, I'm trying so hard to be peaceful in meditation, but The mind is going on and on, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about that, and there's fantasy here, and there's uh, all kinds of stuff going on. So, no problem. The experience doesn't have to change, the wanting doesn't have to stop. What can change that really will make a difference is not believing in its power. So in the meditation I really would encourage you to look carefully to listen carefully to the movement of desire and it could be around very small things it could be around just wanting to move the leg when it first becomes uncomfortable it could be around things to do with the food it could be to around somebody you've seen since you've been here and a wish to talk with them afterwards, it could be a much more uh, complex set of ideas you've had around the person, and all kind of plans for uh, what you'll say and where you'll go together, and the rest of your lives together. And only to find at the end of the retreat that uh, maybe, or maybe not, the person was anything like you expected. Can we allow the movement of the mind, in this case towards wanting, to have its life without needing to jump on its back and ride it wherever it goes, or to try and get rid of it, suppress it? It's an extraordinary liberating insight. For us to see, ah, the mind can produce this wanting and that one can stay steady in the face of it. Just like the sounds pass through the air and disappear forever. So too that bubble of a wanting thought can arise, say it's peace, and be gone. And normally of course we just don't have the chance to even notice that as a bubble of thought because we we we're, we're lost in the the mesh of our compulsive thinking so that no f- sooner has the thought arisen in the mind i could really do with a cup of tea then the kettle's on and the bags, the tea bags in the and the cup before we've even noticed that there was a movement of desire and so on retreat, in these more kind of refined conditions, we start to have a sense much more of the process. We slow things down, we simplify things. And so we start to notice the way, ah, there's a mechanism to this. It's not, a, it's not just a cosmic accident I find myself in front of the tea urn. There was, a, there was a cause, there were conditions involved. A thought arose, and I followed it. And so really to take deep interest in the way desire moves because it can have all kinds of consequences in our lives when we don't pay attention last Christmas my uh, my son showed me the power of wanting it's, it's often very clear to see in children because they're not they, the force of wanting is no greater certainly, but they just haven't learned such uh, complex strategies for hiding it as adults have so on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas he wakes up at some terrible early time and the first words before he hardly opened his eyes he says, can I have chocolate money? you know, these chocolate coins that they get at Christmas and I said, well, <laughs> well, not yet. But why? I got them for Christmas. So he said, yeah, but you know, after breakfast you can have a you know, sensible parent, after breakfast, one, and then maybe another one after lunch. He says, but, but I want them. And I said, yes, yes, I'm sure you do, okay. <laughs> but you know, I tried to reason, but I was a bit bleary. It was, I don't know what time, but ridiculously early. He says, but I want them. I could, re- you can, you could really, you really believe. It. I really could really believe him. I could hear that. I want them, so I tried to reason with him, and and then he wasn't at all satisfied with my uh, stupid adult logic about why he couldn't have chocolate money at five o'clock in the morning or whatever. But all went quiet. This was he was young. So he was still sleeping just next to us at this point, so all we went quiet. So I drifted off back to sleep. And sometime later, he sat up and he said, uh, Papa, can we, go, can we go downstairs now? And I look over at him he, and he's got chocolate on here. So <laughs> <laughs> here. And the force of the wanting was just too much for him. So despite my reasoning with him and encouragement to wait, he, he, could, he couldn't, he wanted to, he heard it, you know, he heard my thinking, you no, know, he's not allowed. And he tried. He went. He kind of said, oh, well, okay, and he went back to bed, but he couldn't. The force of the wanting was so much that he got all these chocolate money out under the covers of the bed. And, and of course, in the process, they all melted. They were all over the bed covers <laughs> and all over his face. And, like I say, our strategies sometimes are a bit more complex than that. But we can recognize that that kind of childish frustration. We feel, but I, but I want to. And we feel that somehow through the wanting we've got this God-given right, then, to to what we want. The poor Americans have even enshrined it in their constitution, you know, the right to happiness, the right to the American dream, to have what we want. But, you know regardless of what the government might say life life never accorded us any kind of right to have what we want sometimes by some by grace it seems yes we get those things but other times not so there's a really A real opportunity that meditation offers us to explore the process of wanting and to see is there a way of meeting this that's skillful that allows me to notice the process and yet not be enslaved by it? And that very much is what we're practicing moment by moment in the simple fact of being present of noticing what's happening, of grounding ourselves in being here, being where life's going on, noticing the simple fact of breathing, noticing the movement of the bodily sensations, noticing the way the mind comes and says it's peace, and seeing, oh, there we go, dragged off by desire. And of course, by the time we're dragged off by it, it's difficult to do something about it. But there can be that recognition of the, the moment that it takes birth. Oh, I want... Ah. Ah, yes. Desire. And let it go on its way. Of course, our wantings, our attachment, our clinging to sensual experience can be very, very much more subtle than that as well even within the sphere of meditation we can find that same wanting mind running riot the way we can compare our meditation experience and try and get back to that nice peaceful experience I had on my last retreat or this morning and the way we start to set up agendas. Even though there's a message, loud and clear, that this moment is it, how can we find peace through some experience that's already gone? That any peace that's there to be discovered, any understanding, any... Real contact with life has to happen in the only moment of life there is right here and yet we say well I've got to get back to that impossible rather than expecting our peace to come from another experience something we've already had or something we will get when I get this then I can be peaceful again when I manage to get rid of this knee pain, then I'll really be able to meditate. If only I wasn't so drowsy, then I could really sit and do a wonderful job of meditation. But there's always something, isn't there? If only I hadn't eaten so much, then I could really sit well. If only that guy next to me would stop uh, shuffling about, then I... It's all the same sphere of that wanting life to be different than it is. Can we be at peace with the wanting rather than making our peace of mind or our ease or well-being dependent on getting the thing we want or getting rid of the thing we don't want? Because if we're making our well-being dependent on that, endless struggle endless struggle there's always something to want something to want to get rid of so please investigate the power of this wanting to recognise the way it moves in the mind and to see what skillful relationship can I bring to this and can I recognise that contraction that the way we kind of uh, get tight around it if we really recognise that tightness the natural response of the mind oh, is to let go, we can feel the discomfort of the contraction that goes around with the wanting we can just simply with the, 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 the knee pain We can feel the way we just don't want it to be like that. The way we really want it to be different. And and you can, as you actually notice, hold on, there's not just an unpleasant sensation going on here. There's a whole bunch of extra stuff called, oh God, if only. When we actually notice all that if only stuff, we can see how tight we are around it. We can see the way we kind of, the muscles are tight. The breathing's tight. The mind is tight. The whole thing is. When we really see that that's going on, we don't need to decide what to do about it. You see, oh. In clear seeing, the natural response of the mind is to let go, and so. Our work in meditation very much is to be interested, to look deeply at our experience in order to see clearly what is happening. And born of that clear seeing, letting go, unhooking. And that moment to moment is what the Buddha called cultivating the mind of non-clinging. Another realm of grasping or clinging that the Buddha referred to is around views and opinions beliefs. And it's more subtle in some ways than the force of wanting in the way that I just described. But very, very insidious. The way we cling tightly to our ideas of things based on endless stuff, based on the past, based on what we've learned, been taught, based on what we've made up for ourselves, based on conclusions we've come to. And of course there's no problem in having a view, an opinion, an idea, a belief about something. But once we start to contract around that, to cling on to that, then we're setting ourselves up for dukkha, for suffering. We're putting ourselves in opposition, in conflict with those who have different views. One looks around the world and sees the degree of conflict and war. And really, one could say, all that tension, conflict... War is based on attachment to views. Religious views, political views. Views of the nation state. Views of geography. Whatever they might be. And as well as those more external views, we see the way political views can get into such heated conflict. And the problem, of course, is that when there's the the attachment to the view, it means I'm right. We kind of feel some personal connection with this view. It's me who believes it. I believe this, and I'm right. And of course, if I'm right, you must be wrong. And then... Difficulty. It's quite extraordinary, the very fact that two people can hold opposing views about the same thing What does that show about views? And yet how solid they they can feel to us. How right I can seem. How wrong someone else can seem. And yet the, the person who might seem so clearly wrong to me, they can feel just as right as I can feel right. to see in our lives in what way am I holding on to ideas and views in a rigid way that is causing suffering conflict argument hatred even and we have all kinds of much more subtle views about Ourselves, about each other about the world and meditation is a way of bringing those views into question of introducing some doubt into those views not in an intellectual way but in a way that really sees, well hold on there's so much unacknowledged stuff going on in my life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 however many years going along with a lot of unacknowledged like the whole force of wanting thing I just talked about unexamined for so long often and our views so unexamined that maybe it's worth just having an open mind about those things not just assuming that because I've believed something for so long that that's the way it is like in a dream we can unquestioningly subscribe to all kinds of views that when we wake up we see clearly they had no basis in reality and in dreams we can find ourselves in a, in a kind of in a composite of several different places we've known all put together or we can find ourselves completely the wrong size for where we are, or, or manner of different things. And yet, during the time of the dream, we accept that unquestioningly. And upon waking, we see, oh, no basis in reality. Maybe many of the views we hold are like that. The views we hold of who we are. When, when we're asked, when we ask ourselves, who am I? So quickly we spring in with a whole bunch of views and opinions about who we are. Name, age, gender, race, shape and size, class, social background, nationality. And of course there's nothing wrong with those labels. Until we really start to believe that that's who I am. When we were standing this morning, I just introduced that idea of really feeling the body as being the only really direct connection with this life actually directly connecting with the way the body is and the mind is. But habitually, what we call connecting with this life is describing a set of labels. Like I just said name and age and all that stuff. But what does that really say about who we are? In a conventional sense, of course, it's totally fine. But when we really believe that, then we kind of shut ourselves off into our own little box and there's us here and the whole of the rest of the life out there and it's made up of little blobs you and you and you and you and some of you I get on with and some of you I don't and I align myself with one group and not with another and this little I have to protect this and do this and this and this and eventually poor old thing's going to wear out and die and it might not even be in that order. So the Buddha, in looking at clinging, points very, very strongly to this way we cling to an idea of self. A strong idea that locates a sense of me here in this body and therefore all I have to do to negotiate with life and struggle through life and get what I want and the endless melodrama called My Life now there's no wish to pretend that that's not going on but is that the whole story can we look closely carefully enough directly at our experience of this bodily life, of what we call me and who I am. Can we look at it moment by moment as it unfolds? Because that's really the only way to get a clear and unfiltered, of the various stories I've made up about myself, the various experiences I've had, the whole kind of, Host of stuff that's put me together in this way. In a way, meditation can be seen as taking off the filters of description, of analysis, that the thinking mind superimposes on top of our experience and seeing more directly. You see what I mean? This this idea of the filter or interpretation. If I do this, there's a directness and aliveness to the just to just that sound, and yet how quickly we say, "Oh, he's clapping his hands." There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, that's what I'm doing. No problem. But we reduce the living experience to something that we know. Oh, he's clapping. Oh, hand clap. Hi, yes. He's trying to wake up the dozy ones, maybe. Life is presenting itself in a way that is alive, instant, and ultimately indescribable. This, is completely indescribable. If I say clapping hands, what the hell has clapping hands got to do with... the useful label, but it doesn't really say anything about the vibrancy of that. And our life is unfolding in the same way. Extraordinarily, unrepeatably, miraculously, moment by moment, bodily life going on. Extraordinarily, this extraordinary fragile thing made up of all these millions of things it's going along according to its own laws quite extraordinarily the capacities of the mind the way it moves life all around us quite extraordinary and yet we've reduced it to a bunch of descriptions and we live in the second hand world of those descriptions So, the encouragement is to be right there with our life prior to the thought about it. And in that way, to start to see clearly what is happening. To see clearly how am I relating to what is happening. Am I relating in a way that's reactive, that clings on, that insists things be this way or that way, that has a fixed view about things? And if so, am I willing to put that aside and be naked in the face of life, vulnerable to the touch of life, So that through our practice, through our willingness to explore, again and again we can unhook from that powerful tendency we have to fix. To cling to what we want and don't want. To what we think about this and that. To our sense of who I am and what I'm doing. To get underneath all of that extraneous stuff and be touched by life in a direct way in a way that can reveal to us something miraculous prior to the thought about it prior to the description of it and the Buddha talks about Cultivating this mind of non clinging. He says there is nothing whatsoever to be clung to. It's quite an extraordinary vision. of non-clinging, a mind of no-clinging. And so, rather than needing to see that as some kind of goal far away, we say, oh well, the Buddha talks about no-clinging, and me, I'm this poor old clinging being, clinging here, there and everywhere, how am I on earth am I going to go from non-clinging, from all this clinging to non-clinging? But it's, moment by moment, our practice, our opportunity, is to recognize where we're stuck and to let go. Where we're hanging on and to unhook. And it's easy to recognize where we're stuck because we feel the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the pain of it. Where we feel that difficulty, where we feel the pain, there is clinging. And likewise, where we cling, there is pain. And so the difficulties we experience, the struggles we have here in the hall and and in our lives, in a way are reminders, are little alarm bells, are wake-up calls, bells of mindfulness they're sometimes called to say hello have a look here see what are you doing so that we start to really take responsibility for that unease, that dissatisfaction that disillusionment that angst that suffering that we feel so well what do I need to see here and really, such a useful question we can ask ourselves in times of difficulty and feeling stuck and, and just feeling the struggle. What am I holding on to? And am I prepared to take the risk of letting it go? So in our time here and in our lives, may we have the courage and the willingness and cultivate the capacity to really take that risk. May our Dharma practice be centered around recognizing our suffering, our clinging, and really letting go of it. May our practice be in the service of cultivating the mind of no clinging. And may we know a true freedom in life for the benefit of ourselves, of each other and of all beings.